0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Daily Remedy Podcast. Today we're here with the long time friend, Dr. Jeffrey Singer. Dr. Singer is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and works in the Department of Health Policy Studies. He's a nationally recognized thought leader in health policy, particularly the harmful effects of drug prohibition. He has written extensively about the importance of harm reduction and follows national and state policy quite closely. And with that, I'd like to welcome Dr. Singer. Great to see you again, Jay. Dr. Singer, uh, Before we delve into some of the specific uh, legislation and issues at hand, uh, I wanna maybe talk generally. Could you provide a broad overview of some of the national and state level news, particularly some of the things that's going on in terms of harm reduction, drug policy, because there's been a lot going on and not all of it has received equal media coverage.
1: Yeah, there's been a lot going on. Some good, some bad, some contradictory. So. On the harm reduction for opioids front, the good news is uh, that, a- as you may be well aware, on the state level, state-level drug paraphernalia laws uh, really stand in the way of harm reduction organizations wanting to help people because, for example, it's up, in, up until recently in most states, if you did so much as hand out fentanyl test strips to people to test to see if what they purchased on the black market's got fentanyl in it or whatever, to, or if it is fentanyl and they thought it was not, well, you can get arrested for handing out drug paraphernalia because that's equipment used to test drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, But now many states, state legislatures have passed laws uh, exempting fentanyl test strips from, uh, fr- from the drug paraphernalia laws. Now, the good news about that is... Now you don't have to get worry about getting arrested if you hand out fentanyl test strips. But as I've discussed many times before, the iron law of prohibition, which is the harder the law enforcement, the harder the drugs. So it incentivizes the continued development of new, more potent forms of drugs, which are easier to smuggle because they're smaller in sizes and you get to sell it into more units. So already we're seeing uh for the last couple of years now it's widely known we're seeing this veterinary tranquilizer xylazine getting mixed in with the fentanyl the users call it trank and uh it's the the, the bad news is it's not re, it's it's not reversible by the overdose antidote naloxone because it's not an opioid but it greatly potentiates the effect of the opioid and a lot of people now are dying from overdoses that, that are a combination of of uh, fentanyl and Xylazine. In fact, the DEA reported in the spring that something like 40% of all fentanyl they're seizing has xylazine in it. So oh, wow. the same company that makes xyla- fentanyl test strips makes xylazine test strips. But if you're in a state like my state of Arizona, they amended the drug paraphernalia law to permit fentanyl test strips. And so now you got to go back to the legislature and say, how about xylazine test strips? Oh, okay, well, let's debate that. And so many uh, lawmakers, and I would t- take this position, I think you should get rid of all the paraphernalia laws because they're in a way of handing out clean syringes, et cetera. But if you're not gonna do that, at least just get rid of the paraphernalia, part of paraphernalia law that says testing equipment or equipment used to test illicit drugs is illegal as drug paraphernalia. Just get rid of that because there's always gonna be a, the, the next thing down coming down the pike and you wanna to have to keep going back to the legislature to get them to okay that exception to the paraphernalia law. So that that's what's going on. But and in some states, um more and more states are at least amending that. Texas uh, lawmakers uh the the governor of Texas who had been against uh allowing fentanyl test chips to be distributed recently changed his position on that and and said he's in favor of it but unfortunately the texas legislature didn't pass it and mm-hmm. send him to send it to his desk as you probably know and this is to me this is um um you know in my in my opinion it's it's uh bizarre but a lot of people think i don't want to give out fentanyl test strips because i'm just enabling drugs yeah. so I guess they'd rather see people die. And and to me, that's the same mentality. If if you want to be consistent, then we, as doctors, I don't think, I think you can make the use that same argument to say, we shouldn't treat people who develop COPD from smoking because we just enabling their smoking habit. Maybe we should just let them die untreated. So I mean, it's the same kind of mentality. So, but that, so that's what's happening on a state level on a national level. Um, the current head of the ONDCP, the drugs czar, Doc, Dr. Rahul Gupta, he's very positive on uh, on harm reduction. He's yeah, he is. very pro-harm reduction. That's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, He's been advocating reforms to allow, for example, safe syringe services programs and, and fentanyl testers. But also um, there's a, a bill that was introduced in Congress. It has bipartisan sponsors in both Houses in the Senate, it's the, the the two co-sponsors are Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts and Rand Paul of Kentucky. It's also joined by by Mike Braun of Indiana, and in the House, it's uh, Donald Norcross of New Jersey and Donald Bacon Don Bacon of Nebraska, and there are other co-sponsors. Bacon is a Republican, uh, of course. Rand Paul is a Republican. Markey's a Democrat, um, and this bill would change the methadone laws. Many people don't know this. I had a paper come out on this in September. Prior to 1972, in this country, if you wanted, if you were a physician, you wanted to treat somebody for substance use, opioid use disorder, you could prescribe methadone for them, and follow them in your office or clinic as a, you know, in an ambulatory way, just so you, just like you would follow your patients with diabetes or high blood pressure or anything like that. And uh, but starting in and and we all know now, methadone is a proven one of the most effective treatments for addiction to opioids. So starting uh, after the uh, uh, Controlled Substance Act was passed in 1972, treatment with methadone and the treatment of opioid addiction was treated differently. And and, and people with addiction were kind of segregated from the rest of the population, stigmatized, almost treated like people who have leprosy. Yeah. And so instead of being able to go to your doctor's office, uh, you have to go to these government-approved, DEA-approved clinics, which are few and far between. They're so heavily regulated, there aren't a lot of them that are around, and then you got to take it, the methadone every day in the presence of a clinic staff because you, you can't be trusted. You're an addict, and uh, you have to come every day to get your methadone. You, you can't be prescribed any to take home until a certain period of time, and then communities Uh, fight the opening up of these clinics in their neighborhoods because they don't want to quote unquote attract drug addicts. So uh, meanwhile, in England, the UK and Canada, since the beginning, since we discovered methadone works, primary care clinicians have been treating people for opioid use disorder with methadone. There's a bill in Congress now that would allow board certified addiction specialists to treat patients in their office, as opposed to them having to go to those methadone treatment centers there aren't nearly enough addiction specialists in this country for that to make a big difference, but it's a step in the right direction. And they're getting resistance, as you might expect, from the people who own and operate the methadone clinics, because it's almost like they're reacting the way the taxi cartels reacted when Uber and Lyft showed up. They're basically, and and so, uh, you know, politically, they're, they're limiting the bill to addiction medicine specialists, because that kind of takes a, a part of the argument away from the opposing opioid treatment program clinics because they're saying no no this is complicated you can't just let anybody treat addiction yeah. us so they're saying oh so you're telling me a board certified addiction specialist is not qualified so th- that's a step in the right direction but I would like to see it go even further and where primary care doctors can yeah. treat it. so that's yeah, what's that's going interesting on this
0: level so it's very interesting how it's Parried in such a way because it's almost like the clinical certifications almost become a form of competitive advantage, at least in the eyes of lawmakers in determining level of access to certain forms of treatment. I want to talk a little bit of what you mentioned earlier about cognitive dissonance in drug paraphernalia laws. There is this notion as you alluded to in comparing addiction treatment with COPD or other chronic conditions in which the belief is that by educating or empowering patients to make safe decisions, you are enabling harmful behavior to society. And we see that particularly for drug addiction, but not so much with other conditions that have less of a stigma. From your vantage point as a national policy leader, as somebody who sees the inner workings of how policy works, how do you reconcile the cognitive dissonance? Do you see it in real time?
1: Yeah, I see it in real time. I think it's it's a combination of moralizing. Well, a lot a lot of it has to do with moralizing, and also you know we selectively decide which kind of behaviors we accept. So, for example, um, you know when we have patients who uh, they they make the right the wrong lifestyle decisions. Regarding how they eat and whether or not they get enough exercise, and they get themselves into a situation where they got borderline diabetes, and you know high cholesterol and high blood pressure, and we think in many cases we probably could get we we don't have we wouldn't have to put them on medication if we could just, just get them to make changes in the way they're eating and in their 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 habits and their exercise habits, but for whatever reason either they can't or they don't want to, or they're willing to take the risk because they enjoy whatever they're engaging in, uh, they they don't. So what do we do? So we pres- when we prescribe a blood pressure medicine for them and a statin drug for their cholesterol and maybe metformin for their, you know, their, their changing A1C, these are, th- this is harm reduction. We're not necessarily endorsing their choice. In fact, we're advising them against it. But as physicians, our mission is to, is to heal the sick and, and 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 try to ease suffering, right? So 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 we're doing our job. We say, okay, well, if you're not going to do what I think you should do, at least let me recommend some things you could do to make what you're doing less harm, less dangerous to yourself. Yeah, you know. So why is it that we we don't see a problem with that, or uh, smoking, which is very harmful, uh, but when a person develops uh, you know, COPD from smoking and they need oxygen uh, and they need bronchodilators, we have no problems prescribing that for them, and they, even if they continue smoking. And we continue to tell them to stop smoking, but we're humane enough to say, well, okay, well, let me get you some oxygen so you're, you're not starving for oxygen and giving yourself a, a heart attack earlier than you otherwise will get one. So uh, or alcohol when people develop complications of alcohol use, but for some reason, certain categories of drugs we have arbitrarily decided are bad, and there are some people whose attitude is that I'd rather see you die from doing that to set an example to others than to than to help you and i just i just i can't i, like I say it contradicts all the attitudes of the other things. it's very arbitrary. Very moralizing makes no rational sense, and it's actually cruel, it's inhumane. Yeah.
0: It's interesting, is in the Oath Maimonides, which is uh, something medical students write recite almost on an annual basis, there's a line May I never see in a patient uh, nothing but a creature in pain. And it's uh, interesting to talk about harm reduction and demoralizing and kind of the way uh, physicians are taught versus policymakers. I want to um, transition the cognitive dissonance argument at the higher level, at the highest policy level. You mentioned Dr. Rahul Gupta and his advocacy for harm reduction. That stands in contrast with what we see among certain lawmakers and what we see among certain institutions. Uh, To the DEA's credit, they are now more receptive to public input. They are at least least willing to consider some harm reduction concepts, Uh, but there's still a little bit of a divide. Um, How does that play out in terms of policy, legislation, and how the two sides communicate? First of all, as a physician,
1: I find it offensive that I need to persuade a law enforcement agency to give me permission to use my best judgment to treat my patients. They're not doctors. And they have their own biases. And to be fair, we have our biases. Their their biases is is from a law enforcement and, and a moralizing perspective. You know, drugs are bad. We got to stop people from using drugs, people from using drugs. Um, they, they're they not the right people to, we, we shouldn't have to be asking them this. Now, as we all know, the DEA is actually charged with coming up with quotas every year that that they have to, that, that they tell all of the, the manufacturers of various opioid, uh, narcotics, uh, and controlled substances. This is how much injectable morphine can be made in 2024. This is how much uh, oral oxycodone can be made in twenty twenty four. This is how much uh, Adderall can be manufactured in 2024. Uh, Any of the controlled substances, and they actually actually designate different manufacturers of different these substances, how much of that they can make. So lots of times if a plant has to temporarily close for quality uh, control measures, we get a shortage because the other plants, unless they get permission, they can't pick up production beyond their quota to make up for the fact that one of these plants shut down. Well, just from the standpoint, of look at what you're asking them to do. How could they possibly know how much of each of these categories of drugs that help people are going to be needed next year? When you have a, a, such a diverse and growing population, over 330 million people, all different people, different clinical situations, you're actually asking them to do something that nobody, it's, it's impossible to do. And of course, Hayek always made us, Frederick Hayek, the great Nobel winning economist talked about the knowledge problem. Essential planners can never really know how much of anything we need because they're not omniscient. thats It's the market, supply and demand that helps us figure out, and the price that helps us figure out what we need. So we have this situation where The dea not only is trying to guess give it the best guess but they're actually going beyond that they're ratcheting down each year yeah so they're deciding uh that we need less we're going to need less next year than this year why because i don't like you using that stuff that's what they're doing they're like being a parent you know and um i i find it offensive and it's what's creating all sorts of shortages including in hospitals i'm sure you're aware jay that Sometimes hospitals will have an, all of a sudden a shortage yes. of morphine or injectable fentanyl, and they have to cancel elective surgeries because many listeners may know, for example, intravenous fentanyl is very important as an anesthetic adjunct and given to people who are having surgery or procedures done. And if we don't have enough of it on hand, we have to postpone these necessary procedures, all because policemen Basically, they decided that you don't need that much fentanyl next year, and who are they? Who's anybody? Even a a pharmacologist couldn't decide that, let alone a
0: policeman. Well, it's interesting that we're talking about that today because today is the last day to comment on the DEA's proposed quota for two thousand and fourteen, two thousand, yeah, two thousand twenty-four. So today, being December fourth, in their acknowledgement. They state they consulted with the FDA, the CDC, and other organizations. How much of a correspondence actually takes place, who really knows? But in your estimate, what level of internal deliberance actually takes place? Where are they creating their assumptions? Or is it truly that parental, I'm cutting you down because I said so?
1: I think it's a combination of that and a combination of assumptions. And and like I said, even if the even if the FDA is background is not in law enforcement or the CDC's background is not in law enforcement, uh, as we learned with the CDC guidelines of 2016 that then became revised and flawed in 2022, they're making their recommendations based on assumptions, many of which yeah. are not are are, are not true. I mean I like to. if you don't mind, I like to segue to what the FDA has recommended now when it comes to uh to nicotine. Yeah, and, go ahead. And uh and, and menthol cigarettes. Okay, there's another yeah. thing. As long as you are in a harm reduction space, many people may think that nicotine in fact, if you do surveys of the general public, they think nicotine is very dangerous. The only the only thing about nicotine is that it, it's a substance that you, that is addictive. But the dangerous Part of smoking is not the nicotine; it's the other components of tobacco smoke, combustible tobacco smoke. Nicotine, and and we most people when they're smoking, they're smoking to get the nicotine because that is it's it's not much unlike caffeine. It's a it's a stimulant, but it also has helps you focus, and it also has a calming effect. It's an interesting drug, Um, and so if you talk to most people who are smoking, they'll tell you they don't even like the taste of tobacco. They smoke for the feeling they get. So yet the, the FDA is, is ordering uh, reductions in the nicotine content of tobacco cigarettes. Uh, there's a good reason to believe that that's gonna actually have uh, the unintended consequence of me- making people consume more cigarettes because they're smoking to get the nicotine effect. And then you have this, this irrational uh, opposition to nicotine e-cigarettes well, you're not opposed to nicotine patches or nicotine gum. Why is yeah. that? I mean, it, it's okay to have nicotine gum as a substitute for smoking because, so just in fact, the fact that we have and, and encourage people to use nicotine patches or nicotine gum is because we realize that if we, can, if, if, if we can get you to stop getting your nicotine through dangerous tobacco smoke and instead get it through some chewing gum or a skin patch, then we're satisfying your desire for nicotine and, you're not inhaling these carcinogens into your into your lungs. But somehow, if you get it in the form of a vape, well that looks too much like smoking. So again, it's not rational, it's a bias. Yeah. And it looks like smoking, even though, as I'm sure you're aware, as a physician, the comparative effectiveness research shows that nicotine e-cigarettes Are much more effective as nicotine replacement therapy to get people Mm. off tobacco smoking than are the gum, than is the gum or the uh, the skin patches. So there's this irrational opposition to nicotine. Now, now we got a war on nicotine, and you tell me, you're the medical doctor. Long-term nicotine is, I mean, it's not much more dangerous than having caffeine continuously. Am I right? Yeah, I mean,
0: particularly with all factors considered equal, yeah. uh, what's most interesting about this argument is that vaping or e-cigarettes was actually considered a form of harm reduction when it first came out, and very quickly it then became a substance of abuse, or at least a perceived substance of abuse, and it's very interesting how the context by which something was perceived then dictates what can, how it can be used and in what context, and I think you highlighted very clearly that the absolute risk of nicotine relative to other forms of addictive substances like caffeine that's available is relatively equal. All factors considered, clinical factors considered equal. But when you start to look at the context of the use, the stigmatization, almost in many ways, creates the allure of abuse. In fact,
1: in the UK, uh, the NH, National Health Service, they actually encourage doctors to give brochures to their smoking patients, asking them to consider switching to nicotine e-cigarettes, and yeah. they sometimes hand them out to people or give them coupons to get it because they they they're much more rational on this one subject in the <laughs> UK than, than we are here and in many parts of the European continent.
0: Speaking of rationality and the lack thereof, rather, let's transition to Colorado. So you recently wrote an article about a legislation that passed there that was SB-144. Uh, what is it, and what does it do for the patient-physician relationship in that state? And I think it's important to talk about the comparison of harm reduction and availability of certain clinical decision-making in the context of nicotine and now transitioning that to the clinical encounter of prescription opioids.
1: Yeah, right. So back in, when, when the CDC came out with its uh, guidelines for, for treating chronic pain patients, which were very flawed and not evidence-based. Um, 38 states ended up passing laws that adopted the guidelines in statute form to, to one extent or another, not necessarily 100%, but a lot of it. And they put uh, physicians under sort of caps uh, saying you can't prescribe more than 90 morphine milligram equivalents of an opioid in a 24-hour period Uh, unless you get, let's say, an opinion from a board-certified pain management specialist to say it's okay, depending on the state, but they Mm -hmm. they use that as cutoffs, and they put limits uh, on on, uh, how many uh, opioids pills may be given out, a number for a certain set period of time. And law enforcement, of course, had new targets now, so they would – Uh, crack down on doctors because they'd be keeping track of this prescription drug monitoring basis. And if they decided you're prescribing too many, then you might get a visit from law enforcement and show up on the nightly news in your community. And even if you did nothing wrong, your whole future, your career and your practice is destroyed. And so that intimidated many doctors to say, I'm just not going to prescribe opioids because I don't want to take that chance. So uh, finally uh, in 2022, After many years of receiving criticism from uh, professionals and pharmacologists, uh, the CDC revised its guidelines, which were slightly better in that they said, uh, just for your listeners, these morphine milligram equivalent conversion tables is true junk science. Uh, In fact, Dr. Navarundas-Gupta at University of North Carolina pointed out in a paper that most of them were derived from Uh, subjective pain score studies done on cancer patients back in the 1980s. And for those who don't know what I'm talking about, it's like you give patient A, let's say, 5 milligrams of oxycodone, patient B, 5 milligrams of hydrocodone. And then you say, on a scale of 1 to 10, what's your pain now? And if one person with the oxycodone says, my pain is down to a 5, and the other one says, my pain is down to uh, a 2, they say, okay, so oxycodone is almost twice as potent as hydrocodone. That's, believe it or not, that was the science. Nothing that went into toxicology, of toxicologic effects, like whether it makes you stop breathing or anything like that. And that somehow, this is science. Is, a lot of medicine is based on, they just ex- accept what somebody else said, and then another person copies that person. Before you know it, it becomes something we just do, and accept, mm-hmm. assume. And one day somebody says, why are we doing this? Did anybody ever check to see if this really works? I can't tell you yeah. how many we see this in medicine, right? So, so, and pharmacologists from the get-go was saying, you can't have equivalence in morphine. You can't, you can't have a conversion between morphine and let's say oxycodone. Mm-hmm. So many factors, you know, what's the yeah. person's kidney function? How, exactly. how are they metabolizing? All sorts of things. So what are the drugs they have issue? Anyway,
0: they took Dr. Back- Singer, uh, uh, let me, uh, I apologize. I think uh-huh. just for context, I'd like to just quote exactly the original study and the reference of the morphine milligram equivalent. I think you might find that interesting. So this was in a 1974 JAMA article in which they first mentioned about the morphine milligram equivalence, and then it was rebuted. And this is the actual terminology that was presented in JAMA. Counter to that of standard texts and journals of pharmacology and is not consistent with their own experience. While it's accepted that they, and they talk about meperidine at the time, dose equivalent to 10 milligrams of morphine is 75 to 100 milligrams. Duration of analgesia by meperity may be as little as 50% that of morphine in chronic and sustained pain. So basically what they are saying is that physicians are under treating patients in pain if we're using these types of false equivalencies to look at overall opioid strengths and risk.
1: Right, so after coming under a bunch of flack, the 2022 guidelines, they removed that section that said don't exceed more than 90 morphine milligram equivalents, but they kind of cheated because they also say when you prescribe, when your prescription dose approaches 50 morphine milligram equivalents, which is almost half that, that's when you should start proceeding with caution. Those are their words, right? So um, they sort of, they sort of, uh, you know, got rid of the MME conversion table at the same time that they didn't get rid of it. But in any case, it doesn't really matter because in my state of Arizona, it doesn't matter what the CDC said in in 2022. We doctors are still stuck in the year 2016 because until the legislature decides to do something about the 2016 guidelines that they put into statute, um, we're operating under those, which is another reason why lawmakers should not put into statute uh, medical science, which if any, any, you would think three years after the COVID pandemic hit, we would realize that most of what we know about medical science is a work in progress. We're learning as we're going. Mm -hmm. We could think we have all the answers now. Two weeks from now, we realize, no, that wasn't it if you put that into law you just you just you know fixed it in concrete well in colorado they did do something to fix that they they passed a law saying that basically doctors cannot be penalized for using their best judgment to treat their chronic pain patients with whatever dose they think is is appropriate to control their patients pain and that they that these morphine milligram equivalent conversion tables shall not apply in the state of Colorado, and and doctors should feel comfortable being able to prescribe it. The only thing I have a problem philosophically with is it it also said that pharmacists cannot refuse uh, to fill a prescription because they decided that they're not going to fill a prescription where a person's getting more than 90 morphine milligram equivalents. I don't think we should dictate the judgment in either direction. I think we should be consistent and just say people should be able to use their judgment. Um, You know, even when I kind of agree with the sentiment, I just, I don't think that's the right thing to do. But Mm -hmm. Colorado did that, That's, that that's great because they finally decided to allow doctors to use their best judgment with their patients and repudiated the morphine milligram equivalents.
0: Now let's play that a little bit further and talk actual clinical scenarios are physicians still at risk from DEA based investigations? And what I mean by that is, though the law has changed, does that affect at all how the interpretations of the law may lead to selective enforcement?
1: Yeah, because that's just the state of Colorado, first of all, and that's state level, but not federal level. So the DEA considers itself pretty much immune to state laws. For example, Colorado, uh, New Hampshire and several other states have a law on the books that says that if you want to go through the prescription drug monitoring boards database to go like on a fishing expedition to see if you could see some doctor who's a quote unquote outlier, you need a search warrant. You need a warrant from a judge saying that uh, this there's, there's probable cause. Uh, uh, the DEA asked New Hampshire to see their database, New Hampshire said. Just give us a warrant. That's and they said, no, you didn't. You didn't hear us. We said we want to see your database. And yeah, give us a warrant. That's the law here. He said, yeah, but we're, we're the feds. We don't have to listen to state law. And it went to court, and they prevailed. A similar case happened in Oregon. So the DEA is basically they're not subject to these things, and um, so they could always, uh, you know, raid a doctor's office, uh, and not, not just in treating pain, but also in treating addiction. Yeah. Uh, there's a story, uh, an article that I co-authored with two uh, professors of psychiatry and addiction medicine at Vanderbilt Medical School in, in Tennessee. It's going to be, the scheduled to come out on December 19th in Kevin M.D. Um, and uh, uh, there was a, a very highly respected uh, doctor in, in the state of Tennessee, Dr. Tom Reach, who is an addiction specialist, and he was treating Uh, patients with buprenorphine, he had, at the time, he got the X waiver from the Drug Enforcement Administration to be able to prescribe buprenorphine, uh, which is that and methadone are the two proven effective forms of medication-assisted treatment for addiction, and he'd been doing it for years. In fact, he was highly regarded enough that he would come and give guest lectures at the Vanderbilt University Medical School. Everybody had a, a, a great amount of respect for him, and the DEA raided his office Wow. Uh, and as happens, I don't have to tell you what ends it, what up happening is they get uh, the doctor to uh, uh, either they don't charge you or they find something like they, they get you to agree to a plea bargain to something that you didn't do, but it's much more much less of a, of a of a penalty than if you lost in court for the thing they're accusing you of doing so you take it. And that's what happened in his case. He agreed to a plea bargain to pleading guilty, for I think it had something to do with labeling the drugs they keep in the medicine cabinet in the clinic, some you know minor little infraction, so obviously they didn't have anything if they were willing to do that, and that was like yeah. months in six months in prison, uh something like that um but in according to Tennessee law, he lost his license to practice medicine because of that because the licensing law it didn't allow that so so Tennessee just lost. Uh, uh, And the patients with addiction in in uh, in the rural parts of eastern Tennessee just lost a very distinguished, experienced, highly respected addiction specialist. So now at the end of 2022, Congress uh, passed a law that took away the requirement for doctors to get an X waiver. It's actually X. DEA narcotics license in order to prescribe buprenorphine because. Uh, Congress realized that buprenorphine works. We want to make it as available as possible. So, and, and doctors were not uh, prescribing it because they want to go through all those regulatory hoops to get the X waiver and the hours of training and all that other stuff. So they passed the law saying no more X waiver waiver starting now. If you want to prescribe buprenorphine to addiction, you, you go right ahead. As long as you have a DEA narcotics license and a lot of, uh, People who are following this are lamenting. Gee, even though we we passed that law, we don't seem to be seeing a lot of uptake among addiction specialists wanting to, or or primary care doctors wanting to treat addiction with buprenorphine. They don't have to get an X waiver. What's why aren't they jumping at the opportunity? Why? Because as soon as you do that, you know you got a target on your back that you, the yep. DEA is going to surveil you and try to catch you for some something. So. Many doctors are just making a you know risk, a risk a benefit <laughs> risk decision, saying you yeah. know what as much as I'd like to help people with addiction I j- I just can't afford to take a chance. So uh, I, a lot of the problem is law enforcement. It, it's because yeah. even when states relax their laws, like they did in Colorado, or like the federal government did with respect to the X waiver, you're not going to see doctors uh, adjust to what they're doing yet because they're afraid. They're still afraid yeah. of what the, what the law enforcement's going to do.
0: Now, let's talk a little bit about the DEA and this concept of administrative credibility. And what I mean by that is, you gave the example of the DEA prevailing in court in New Hampshire against the state, I assume, professional licensing agency requesting a search warrant. We talked about the case of Dr. Reach in Tennessee. In all of these instances, there seems to be a benefit of the doubt or a certain level of credibility toward the DEA in that the powers that be say, well, the DEA must know what they're doing. They have the final say-so. And I've seen that the DOJ's deferential, the CDC, FDA, legislators, there's a certain reverence to the DEA, despite many people not necessarily agreeing with their approach. Where does that come from?
1: I think a lot of it, again has to do with biases and moralizing. Uh, I uh, ha- had a white pa- I, re- I co-authored a white paper for the Cato Institute came out, <coughs> excuse me, in 2022, called "Cops Practicing Medicine: The Parallel Histories of What We Call Drug War One." and Drug War II. Drug War I was from 1914 with the Harris Narcotics Act until around the 1960s. And Drug War II is from uh, the the uh, President Nixon's war on drugs and is still going. Um, and uh, my co-author, Trevor Burris, is a constitutional scholar, a, law, a lawyer and constitutional scholar. So he focused more on the, on the case law. I focused more on the medical science in the paper. And he uh, showed how every time cases would come to the courts, they tended to defer to the arguments made by law enforcement. And sometimes we jokingly, uh, or not, I mean, not jokingly, it's like sarcastically or cynically referred to it as the drug war exception to the rule of law. A perfect example, uh, back uh, the very famous Raish case about uh medical marijuana in california uh this woman named Raish, uh in in keeping with california law was growing marijuana on her own property and giving it not even selling it to her neighbors for medicinal uses uh and the dea arrested her and she said i'm i'm following completely complying with california law there's nothing i'm doing here is illegal now this is the same supreme court this is Uh, when Antonin Scalia was there, that had just made uh, huge moves in favor of reining in the the misuse of the Commerce Clause. Because a lot of times when politicians would pass laws in Congress that you would say, does the federal government have any jurisdiction here? Isn't this a state issue? They would give the excuse, well, we have the right to regulate interstate commerce, and this is commerce. And they were calling all sorts of things commerce so i don't want to get too off topic but there were a series of cases where that court said no a lot of things that you're just a lot of federal laws that you're justifying based on the interstate commerce clause is actually not interstate commerce and we're finding them unconstitutional like the federal gun free school zones act the federal violence against women's act those are examples okay so meanwhile um you would think well then if they're If they're if they're thinking that way, then surely they'll see that this is not interstate commerce. This is grown on your land to be shared, not even sold, but to be handed to people on nearby land in the same within the same state. Surely they'll say the federal government is out of line here. No, they didn't. (laughs) They said in this particular case, the federal government was justified. Why? Because it was marijuana.
0: marijuana.
1: Marijuana bad.
0: Yeah. See. That's interesting. Uh, For the listening audience, just to clarify, the commerce clause refers to, and this is uh, from the uh, Legal Information Institute, Article 1, Section 8 of the U.S. Constitution, which, quote, gives Congress the power to regulate commerce with foreign nations among states and with Indian tribes, but it's commonly used to justify exercising legislative power over the activity of states and their citizens. And what Dr. Singer is alluding to is how that clause often leads to overreach being justified in the courts.
1: Right, right. So Not, there's this bias where it seems like they could be very consistent, except when it comes to some evil drug, you know. Yeah. And, and by the way, what makes them evil? <laughs> I mean, yeah. a- Among the most dangerous drugs that we have is alcohol, right? I mean, mm-hmm. alcohol causes all sorts of problems, including in some people violence. Yeah.
0: Uh,
1: but uh, w- these, but but that's legal, and it should be, by the way. Meanwhile. Um, many of these illicit drugs that what makes them a dangerous a large part of what makes them dangerous is the fact that they're illegal so people get them on the black market yeah. where you don't know if it, the dose is right or what even it is what it says it is or what it's adulterated with but a lot of those drugs are in long-term use of many of those drugs are actually a whole lot less harmful than long-term use of a legal drug like alcohol
0: i want to talk about that last point you made because at various seminars by the Cato Institute that issue comes up about the power of the black market and the importance of destigmatizing and regulating the use in a safe environment particularly a free and fair market many administrators particularly with a law enforcement background will say that if we do legalize certain drugs the black market will simply undercut what is the free and fair legal market. Do you ascribe to that belief or do you see that's maybe an oversimplification?
1: I don't see the, the only way the black market undercuts it is if when the drug is legalized, uh, there are a lot of string regulatory and tax strings attached. So, mm-hmm. for example, in California and in New York State, they legalized. Marijuana, Right. <laughs> but they had so many requirements on uh, and, and such strict quotas on who can operate a legal marijuana retail center. And uh, they put huge taxes on the marijuana excise taxes such that it became so expensive that people living in California, New York, rationally said oh well if it's legal and i can't get arrested for for possessing or using it i'll just get what i i'll get the marijuana from the person i was getting it from all the time because it's like a tenth the price if Mm -hmm. if i went to this marijuana store so if you're going to legalize it but you're going to effectively create prohibition through prohibitive taxation and regulation then the black market is going to come into effect but if mm-hmm. you legalize it and you could still tax it, but tax it at you know at at a, a reasonable rate and and don't make it so onerous for people to open up dispensaries, then the black market will disappear. I and mean, we're seeing the same thing when it comes to tobacco cigarettes. In New York, it's so expensive to buy a pack of cigarettes that there's a very healthy black market in people selling <laughs> cigarettes on the street and some sometimes they sell what they call loosies, which are loose individual cigarettes. We all know the famous story of of Eric Garner, who was arrested for selling loose cigarettes on a street in New York City, I think it was in Staten Island. And of course he died from a chokehold that a police officer used on him. So um, now in this case, same thing, tobacco is legal, but if you make it prohibitive, then you're gonna create a black market. Interesting, yeah,
0: very true. Let's um let's transition now to something uh, a little more optimistic, and that's the future. 2024 is going to be a very interesting year because we have the presidential elections, we have a lot of state legislation that's underway, and presidential election years tend to be more turbulent than most. 2016, we saw a lot of prohibitionist policies that were coming to, in vogue, and now we're starting to see some harm reduction efforts coming to place, and in some places, harm reduction being reeled in, if you will. What does 2024 look like to you? Do you see progress, or do you see a lot of volatility with kind of a net draw in the end?
1: I see a lot of volatility. On the one hand, some of it actually has made, because it's an election year, it's made uh, uh, some politicians a little more, cautious about proceeding with harm reduction for example this past summer i think it was uh lawmakers in california uh passed a law allowing for overdose prevention center pilot programs in the los angeles uh area and the bay area um which you know we know overdose prevention centers you often in the past they were called um uh, state consumption sites. But over those, there's two operating in New York City and in their first year they saved a thousand lives to reversing overdose deaths. They're federally illegal. The city of New York actually approved those two in defiance of federal law. So far, nothing's happened. The state of Rhode Island legislature also approved it, providing that they're privately funded and uh, the first overdose prevention center is scheduled to open up there at the beginning of this year coming coming year. And in Minnesota, they just also legalized it. So California, the most populous state, they passed uh, a law allowing for pilot programs on overdose prevention centers. And they have a state, their state that has a record of being pretty good on harm reduction. So Governor Newsom uh, vetoed it. And that was a, a surprise, because uh, it was not kind of uh, keeping with his previous behavior, You many people would have expected he was going to sign it. But then he might have national aspirations, uh, you know, aspirations for a national office. And a lot of people think that the reason why he vetoed it is because, you know, that may play well in in the coastal areas, that idea. But in middle America, a lot of critics say, wait a minute, you're going to invite people inside to use drugs? I can't believe it. So um, he decided to I would, and I, I I agree. I subscribe to that opinion. I mean, nobody knows what was in his head, but I subscribe to the, to the explanation that he decided to play it safe politically, because in case he wants to run for higher office. So, one of the election years, sometimes they tend to make uh, politicians a little more reticent to to do what is perceived as a bold kind of measure. They tend to play. They tend to rein things in and, and get very cautious and conservative rather than be accused by their opponents of being radical. So that's the the downside of it. Another yeah. thing that concerns me as I'm watching uh, all of the Republican candidates for president, including Donald Trump, they're all coming out for this idea of invading Mexico <laughs> or <laughs> send, sending you know special forces in after the cartels, which... You know, it didn't work when we had planned when we had planned Colombia in the Clinton administration to try to get rid of the cocaine trade. Cocaine prices have never been cheaper, and cocaine related overdose deaths have never been higher. So yeah. it didn't work, but it sure created a miserable life for the people living in Colombia. So, and and there it was easier because you could, you know, burn down fields where coca leaves were being where coca was being grown, but. Fentanyl is made in labs in basements. You know how are you going to do without, you know, having urban warfare? So with a whole lot of injured, innocent people getting injured, and destabilizing our our now our largest trading partner that we share a two thousand mile border with and have, have friendly relationships with. Why in the world do you want? And you think that's going to do anything except maybe move the fentanyl trade to another country. I mean yeah. that's all it's gonna do after you destroy your neighbor. And so what worries me is I'm hearing a lot of this jingoistic talk. Now maybe just talk and you know chest beating and bellicose talk in hopes of, you know, winning the primary and getting elected. But but that's a that's a worrisome a worrisome uh thing, worrisome trend.
0: Yeah. I wanna end with Possibly an unfair, but I think important question that the audience would be very interested in. Every election cycle, there's always one healthcare issue that rises to the fold. Most of the time it's abortion, but let's maybe take that issue to the side and focus on the context of prohibitionist policies, whether that's prescription opioids, harm reduction. What is the one issue, if you can contextualize it in kind of just a byline, what is the one issue that you think is going to be hotly contested this election cycle?
1: Well, I think there are going to be a few key ones. You know, obviously, as as wasn't it, uh, James Carville famously said, it's the economy, stupid. So probably the overwhelming uh, issue is going to be inflation and economic issues. But another major issue we're hearing a lot is immigration and the border, and yeah. what has, this, has which what has uh, particularly frustrated me uh, is that there's this tendency for people who for people who want restrictions on immigration to conflate the fentanyl trade coming across the border into the United States with immigration. You hear this all the time that we got to control that border. They're bringing in fentanyl. It's not like immigrants uh, are bringing in fentanyl. In fact, the data show that more than 93% of uh, fentanyl seizures are at legal border crossings from U.S. citizens. In fact, my colleague David Beer at the Cato Institute did this study on that. It was entitled U.S. Citizens Smuggle Fentanyl Through Legal Border Crossings to Sell to U.S. Citizens. And only point zero zero nine percent of all people uh, caught by uh, border patrol between legal border crossings are ever found to have fentanyl on them. And when mm-hmm. you think about it, if you're if you're in a it's a business, so you're the cart you, you had uh, one of the cartels in Mexico, and you want to get fentanyl into the United States, and you're making billions and billions of dollars doing this. So what makes more sense to you to to pay, let's say, a hundred thousand dollars cash, to a quote-unquote mule, who who's a, a U.S. citizen who may have an impeccable record, and he dressed. You make sure the person dresses very conservatively and looks real good, and they 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 have it fentanyl. Very few dogs are able to smell fentanyl, so it's not detectable, and it, it, it's so powerful you could smuggle tiny, tiny packages in different places, and you just you know very calmly cross through. The U.S. border crossing at, let's say, El Paso or Tijuana, you show your passport, you answer the questions, and you're told, have a nice day, welcome back to the United States. And then when you get to the other side, you give it to the person you're supposed to give it to. What makes more sense for you as a a cartel head to pay $100,000 to that person to do that, which is pocket money for you, or hope that some peasant and his family who's struggling to make it across the frontier – in 110 degree heat, between the state of New Mexico and uh, the the Mexican state of Sonora, uh, put some of this in your backpack. And then, if you make it alive across the border, I want you to meet up with this person to give it to them. Come on, what makes more sense? You oh, know. Yeah. What I mean? <laughs> so, so what, one of the I think the immigration issue is going to be a big one. And what this, what bothers me is that they're. In, I think it's intentional because everybody's upset with the overdose death rate. Yeah. And uh, I was at a conference about this in Houston, Texas, a few weeks ago, and I said, I was asked, how is the fentanyl overdose crisis an immigration issue? And I said, it only is tangentially related to immigration in that it crosses the border, but it's a prohibition crisis. It's the fact that it is so lucrative, that prohibition makes it so lucrative to smuggle fentanyl across the border, and also that prohibition incentivizes the production of more potent forms of drugs. So that's why we migrated from diverted prescription pain pills to heroin, and then from heroin to fentanyl, and now from fentanyl to fentanyl and xylazine. So um, it's a it's a prohibition problem. But most politicians, and I think they may even know this. I think they're dishonestly trying to conflate the two because that makes people even more upset about. Mm-hmm our border. And so I think that's probably one of the other major, I, I know it's, one, it's going to be one of the other major issues in this election.
0: Yeah, it's a shame, you know, as the saying goes, an angry voter is more likely to turn out. Well, yeah. with that, Dr. Singer, thank you so much for your time. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. Pleasure being here.